you should look at, at flu control from both sides of the equation. In one end, you want to help increase that immunity and um, that resistance of the animals. And I think you do that for the most part using vaccines. And on the other end, you want to decrease that risk of, of transmission. Um, and then you do that with biosecurity practices. So for me, flu control, you have to work in both sides of the equation vaccines and, and management or biosecurity. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Swine management to the next level, cloudfarms.com. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis Genetic Program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to Genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Monsi Tormel who is a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Veterinary Population Medicine. Monsi, good morning. How are you today? Very good, Laura. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you on this morning, Monsi. Uh, you and I know each other from, from quite a ways back, but there might be some people on our broadcast this morning that may not know much about you. And so maybe I'll have you start with first introducing yourself to our listeners. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So who is Monse, right? Uh, so as you said, um, now uh, I work at the University of Minnesota and I've been there since 2009. So I came um, in the middle of a pandemic, um, uh, 2009 swine influenza pandemic. They, that's how they were call it, calling it before that uh, at that time. But before that, actually, I work at PIC, where I was there for 10 years. And, um, and I had different roles in terms of health assurance, global um, director. I got involved in research. So I got a good exposure to the swine industry. And to work in the swine industry had always been my dream, to be honest. And I had that opportunity to do that at, at PIC, which, which was great. Uh, to work in the U.S. and then also to work globally. And before that, actually, I was at the University of Minnesota, where um, that's where I did my graduate uh, work. My, uh, that's where I have obtained my Ph.D. Uh, to understand the transmission of diseases, actually, <laughs> under the, the advisorship of Dr. Carlos uh, Pijuan. And as you can notice, I have an accent, so I'm originally from Spain, that's where I got my DVM degree, and that's where actually I am from a very small area in Spain or a small town in Spain in an area which I actually, I call it the Iowa of Spain. Uh, 
when it comes down to pigs, right? It's Lleida. So I had always an interest in, in pigs, and I grew up raising three pigs at home, my family, but those were for own consumption. So that's how it was back then. But that's where actually I could see myself working in the industry. And I like medicine and I like production. So I thought this was a good fit. So when I had the opportunity to come to the U.S. to further my education, to learn more about swine diseases, I took it. And since then, it's history. So um, so that's what I do. And then since I've been at the University of Minnesota 2009, I developed a research program um, an applied research program focusing on the control of infectious diseases, mostly influenza, and also PERS. Uh, when I was at PIC, I was involved on the um, efforts to get rid of PERS virus, so I have that in my background, and I felt like we needed to do something similar for influenza, and there wasn't a lot of information then. So my research program a lot developed uh, on understanding influenza at the farm level and then with the goal to design better control and eventually elimination projects for influenza but also when you think about diseases and controlling diseases you also have to think about keeping them up so i do have a bit of a interest or a passion i should say not just interest on uh airborne diseases so diseases that can be transmitted through the air from a biosecurity perspective. So so that's what I like to do. I like to study diseases and then put that knowledge to practice and bring components of disease, epidemiology, and disease control and prevention. Wonderful. Yeah, I think that's probably where I know you the best is through some of the work that you've done with flu and, and aerosol transmission. And so I think let's really talk about that today um, we are doing this podcast in winter, and we always talk about how winter is the great time to pass diseases around. So let's pick on, on flu today a little bit, and, and maybe let's just start with um, some of the, the typing. So some of our oh, listeners may hear of H1N1 or H3N1, and right, we have bird flu, and we have you know strains for human flu, and, and pigs have strains, but what do these all mean to people? How do how do we kind of start to break it apart? Yeah, you know, I consider flu one of those viruses uh, that I actually think if, 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 if flu had a brain, I would say that it's very smart, right? Because it knows how to adapt and change and keeps changing. And because it changes so much, uh, we have to in some way learn to classify it and put it in groups. So that's where we talk about uh, type A influenza and within the type A, which is basically the one that affects pigs for the most part, and pigs and people, for the most part, we have what you mentioned before, H1N1, H1N2s, H3s and 2s. Those would be subtypes. And that's another way to classify the flu virus according to the proteins, the surface proteins that the virus has. But what is interesting is that these proteins keep changing, right? The virus has to keep adapting, has to be able to move to to another host and move to other pigs. And then um, even though we say there are three main subtypes of influenza, then within each of them, there are millions, I would say, or thousands or hundreds, depending on how you want to look at it, of different types of influenza viruses, different strains. 
And that's where the challenge comes in when we think in terms of the control, because some of the vaccines we have can just not give you protection against all the types of influenza because the virus keeps adapting, right? So that's one of the challenges of influenza, but it's also what makes it so fascinating too. And then on top of that, when you really think about influenza, it's what we call a segmented virus, has eight different segments. And what it means is that when different viruses are together in the same cell and then they replicate, they can exchange those gene segments. And then um, that can give place to new viruses. And that's what we call the new reassortant viruses. And then that's actually another very smart way that the virus has to evolve and persist in population. So just to make things a bit more complicated for veterinarians and producers and public health, as I said, influenza is very smart when it comes down to finding ways to, to live in the populations. Absolutely. It's, it's very interesting. And I think some of our readers may be a little bit familiar with what happens in people, um, you know, just because, again, if they're getting their flu shots and they hear about this strain or that strain. But what I'm hearing you say is it happens the same in pigs as it does in people. We can have different strains, different assortments, and maybe some of our flu vaccinations that we have available for pigs aren't necessarily going to be as effective for some of our strains of flu as maybe some of our others. Would that be fair? That Yeah, certainly it is. I mean, I think to me there are two things that happen. One, in pigs, um, we have new strains coming in into the pigs that many of these strains come from people who are infected that then they just happen to be working with the pigs. And this has happened forever, I would think. But now we perhaps see more. We have better ways to 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 diagnose or better tools to figure out that part. But also, as you said, the control when we use about vaccines, we need what what with vaccines you try to do is to control what you have, not what you will it will come because you don't know what it will come, right? So so that's what you are trying to do. So flu gets a bit complicated because of that reason, and that's one of the needs why flu vaccines need to be updated on a regular basis. Absolutely. So I heard you briefly just state a comment in there about the fact that a person could be working on the farm that currently is flu positive and those flu virus particles, if you will, can get reassorted within the pig. And so people can actually be a form of transmission to the pig. How else can flu be transmitted within a farm or to a farm? Yeah, so so certainly other animals, like obviously pigs, the, the, the replacement animals that we may be brought in if they don't go through an isolation and we don't let them enough time to in some way go through the infection or resolve the infection, then it can also be a very good source of virus to the, to the farm. And actually, in a study that we did, that was one of the main ways how um, viruses, uh, new viruses would come in into farms, the gills, or at least they have the potential. I'm not saying all the gills will bring influenza, but they can if they come from positive farms. So you have to handle those gills uh, so that the infection is self-contained in the isolation if you can. But then what happens is that I think it's very interesting with influenza, which is slightly different than other diseases like first is that inside the cell farm, cell farms are really a very good 
place for influenza to 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 stay and get maintained, right? Because you have the adult population, the sows, that basically they they actually uh, once they've gone through the infection and once they've recovered, they are not the main source of the virus. The virus is actually in the piglets, uh, but remember the piglets are born negative with influenza which is different than for first. We think, obvious, often I, I think we make the mistake to think that influenza and PERS behave very, very similarly. And in some instances they do, but in some other instances they don't. And that's one of the main differences I want to point out, that influenza virus, the, the pigs, don't, they are not born with influenza virus. But that means that all that population is fully naive because they don't have even antibodies against influenza when they are born. The antibodies from the mother, they uh, acquire them, you know, through colostrum, so shortly after birth. And those uh, that immunity, it's not always totally protective. It helps clinically, but sometimes depending on the quantity and the quality of, of, that, of those antibodies, the virus is still able to replicate, right, and transmit. So actually, that population, the piglets, it's um, you know, recruits. It's uh, it's great to recruit new virus infections, really, and and that's one of the main challenges. And we've seen often that in those twenty-one days that those piglets stay at the farm, right, from birth to winning, you can go from having zero percent pigs positive at birth to one hundred percent. So one question that we have to ask ourselves is then how do those pigs get infected during that time when it does not come from the sows? And we've looked into that quite extensively in which sows, when they farrow, for the most part, they are not the main source of the virus, right? So that we did different investigations. And you, you know this, Laura, right? That, and we see that in humans. Flu is very contagious, right? So actually, that indirect transmission of of the flu virus, it 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 happens very often. And what it means is that people's in the hands, contaminating materials, even mixing it. If we do cross fostering with pigs that are positive, um, that are, they are a very good source of uh, influenza virus. We even documented that the north sows that you know we need them those sows that we take at winning, that they already raised their litter, if those sows raise a litter that was influenza positive, we've documented that the skin of those sows, you know, in the other than the underlying, can have contaminated or can have viable influenza. So if then you put another litter that it's fully naive um, to suckle from those sows, then that's another way how influenza gets maintained. So that's just an example about how easy it is to move influenza within a cell farm. Right. Yeah. That. So as a producer now, I'm scared. Right. I'm. I'm. I'm kind of maybe flustered too as to what do I do. Right. So um, you're telling me my pigs are born negative. They're not. They're not getting it in utero as as they would purrs, and I'm probably through employees, equipment, um, potentially nurse sows. I'm. I'm introducing flu to them and and then creating potentially 100% positive piglets when they leave the farm. So what do we do? What what can we do to kind of put a a stop in that that process? 
a very good question. And actually, we've looked into that um, in pieces, right? Because we, sometimes, again, thinking in that purse mentality, we say, well, what about if we do very good micro-rebel, very good biosecurity practices of no cross-fostering, no movement of animals, uh, even limiting the, the north-south, for instance, or even changing gloves? Is that good enough? And actually, all data from the farms where we have investigated that, it shows that it's not good enough, that when we implement only biosecurity measures like that, if there is a lot of influenza in the population, so if, if the farm is a farm that has a lot of influenza, that's not good enough. What those measures do is to delay that infection, but it's not enough to actually get to a point that the piglets are weaned negative. On the other end, we talked about vaccines before. We also have seen that vaccines on their own are very helpful to actually, again, delay that infection, right? Delay that infection and uh, take care of the clinical signs. Pigs look better. They don't cough as much. They, they, and they have less, inf that less virus because that immunity helps but may not be enough. Where we actually, I think, the opportunity is is when we combine both, when we combine vaccination and strategies of internal biosecurity. That's where we have seen the success of actually trying to eliminate or try to um, win a negative pick. But thinking in terms of implementing an elimination project, I would encourage producers and veterinarians to look at those two pieces and when you do that, even those strict biosecurity protocols, they don't need to be there forever. It's just a very targeted intervention during that time that um, that you're trying to focus on breaking that cycle of transmission. Because again, the other thing with influenza that it's different with PERS, it's when the pig is infected individually, usually it stays the infection in the, in the pig short period, let's say one week. At the population level, it's longer than that. So we have to find a way to break that infection at the population level. That's why, um, that's why when we implement some of these protocols, we talk about four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. But we don't have to go to the extreme that we do for PERS about the closure of the nine months or 10 months because influenza, um, if we take care of some of the other things on the transmission side of things, it just doesn't persist along at the population level. And obviously, if you do spend the time to look into the vaccination and some of these management practices from a biosecurity perspective, then obviously what you do with your gills become very important too because you don't want to start introducing new viruses. So I think those are three pieces that a producer can do um, that help decrease that uh, at least the load of influenza virus, and hopefully with that help get rid of some of the strains. Because the other thing that happens is in these farms, we tend to have more than one strain of virus. And then often we don't know until we control one, then we see the other one uh, surface, right? So, so it, it becomes a bit of a puzzle. But it's also interesting that some strains die out on their own. We don't know why, but they die out. Maybe others take over, right? So to me also, but this is more of a philosophical question and I don't know how to get there, but maybe it's a challenge for, 
for the industry is also looking to is there a way how um should when we look into controlling influenza of eliminating try to get rid of that diversity of virus right because if we had less diversity we had less strains for circulating in a farm it certainly would be easier to target a vaccine for instance right so i think there is some work that we need to do that and expand that work to the grow finish area after we win the pigs because that's where actually 90% of the pigs in the U.S. are in grow finish. And I don't think we do enough on that area. And I don't have the answer on what to do there yet. But uh, we certainly, at the same time, we have to start in the cell farm. So Absolutely. So one of the questions that just came to mind was you were talking about diversity of the strains within the cell farm. Have you ever measured the amount of diversity in sow farms versus grow finish? Meaning, do we see more diversity in grow finish than what we do in the sow barns? Oh, that's a very good question. We haven't actually, no, we, we haven't done it that way. But if the diversity in the sow farms is can be significant, it's not uncommon to find three different lineages working over time or at, at a time. Um uh, We've, we've documented that multiple times. I think in grow finish, depending on how you manage, and, and on grow finish, you have to also define what's your population, right? The good thing about grow finish is many of those winter finish sites or nurseries or finishing sites are all in allowed. That actually by default helps you from that diversity, right? Or it should help you, but I don't think we've looked into it. That's actually a good a good question, Laura, and then you're challenging us to do that research to to figure out that that part. But I can tell you, we are actually right now doing a, a study in which we are collecting samples from cell farms and grow finish, and the cell farms get commingled at winning, the, the piglets. And it's um, it's common to find multiple subtypes in the same population. Right. Uh, and then going back to what I was saying before on how this virus change, in this study in particular, we are looking for reassortance. So we are looking at the possibility of finding new viruses when you mix viruses or when you mix pigs from sources that they have different viruses. So we are actually right now doing that study, trying to document and quantify how many new viruses, if you will, um, there could be an, a population, the nursery and in the finishing site, when they all originate from the same cell farm. So, so we are in the sample process, sample collection stages. I don't have um, an answer, but I think um, I can tell you. I think already for what we are seeing, uh, the results will be interesting. And, and unfortunately, I think we are going to find multiple combination of these viruses then. Some will disappear of the population, but some others likely will have that um, capacity to, to continue to replicate and then um, transmit forward if they have the opportunity. So stay tuned. Oh, that's actually really interesting. I think that'll be certainly fun to read and, and hear about. Um, you also had mentioned somewhere in your, your conversation just a little bit ago, um, we were talking a bit about eliminating flu 
from a herd. And I, I think that's something that I've seen over years too, is where we try a flu elimination. And like you said, we don't feel it was successful because we probably eliminated one of the, the three strains that, that's predominant on the farm and the other two just take over. Um, so my question, I guess, kind of goes back to what do we do with that? Because I, I do see people today where they're, they're almost just saying, okay, well, we understand we're going to have flu. We're always going to have flu. And so I don't see flu always being a winter disease anymore, right? I've seen herds coming in with, with piglets flu positive in summer and, and so forth. And so what's the implication of that? Is that the right approach? You know, should we be doing something different there? Yeah, you alluded to that a couple of times, and um, I didn't elaborate on that, that actually, even though we see more flu in the winter and the fall, flu is there year-round, unfortunately. Again, because we have these populations of animals like the piglet that help maintain that infection, so we continue winning positive pigs. So that's that's important. So I think from the producer perspective, we need to look at the flu control programs, part of the standard protocols. I don't think we should just do them when we see a flu outbreak. Uh, personally, I think they should be there on an ongoing basis. Um, uh, and I think vaccinations, it's one tool that we should be using in the South Farms. As frustrating as it is sometimes that we have to update vaccines, what I think it's even more frustrating is having naive populations that then just help attract those viruses, right? So so I think that's one of the things we can do. But obviously, then the devil is on the details because there is a lot of different flu vaccines or how you determine. And uh, But I would start with assessing what happens at the farm because even not all the farms are the same. And different production systems are, dif- you know, they have different protocols. And then try to quantify the impact that the flu might have in your system. Because I don't think we have good numbers either. And the other thing that is frustrating with influenza, which just just makes it more complicating and more difficult for the producer to really decide what to do, is again, because we have this genetic variation, not all the flu strains are the same from an impact of the disease. Some flu strains, you could argue, that are very mild. And why would you invest any funds in trying to control them? Probably you, you don't need to. But there are other flu strains that are really, really even killing the animals, not just causing some type of um, cough and that's it. And the same happens in humans, right? There are some seasons like this, for whatever reason, I think this year fluids, it, it's rampant. Um, that we do have flu viruses that really, unfortunately, you know, cause a lot of losses and other years they don't. And I think we have some of the same in pigs. And it, but I can see how it's frustrating because we call it the influenza uh, in general, when in reality, um, there are those different types and some they are um you know, more costly and more difficult to control. But to the producer, I would say, or to the veterinarian, to me, we cannot forget about influenza. We should not just take it in consideration when we have an outbreak. I think there are things we can do from an employee perspective, you know, uh, encouraging vaccination, having some 
biosecurity practices. I think there are things we can do that we should, they are just good public health practices that they, we should do it anyways. So, um, yeah, and I think some of the strategies will not just be good for influenza, they will be good for other viral diseases that may be in the population when, when you think about biosecurity, right? Absolutely. I think that's something we learned with PED when we were trying to control PED. We saw other diseases, at least on the South Farm, kind of slow down and be quiet for about six months or so until after your, your PED protocols were complete. And and so I agree, your good biosecurity, good hygiene on the farm certainly mm-hmm. can go a long ways. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one, one of the things I forgot to mention before that, that the recent finding we found, again, this flu transmits very easily, we find, in the hands of employees, in the clothes of employees. And we saw in these farms that they have a lot of flu, again, in those south farms, those events that happen at winning, whether it's vaccination or loading, those are main risk events for moving the virus to the younger animals. So one thing easy that we could do, loading usually happens first thing in the morning. After loading, I think we should go ahead and change the coveralls and we'll do a good washing of the hands and the forearms uh, of the people involved on, on the loading or even the vaccination of the piglets that winning. Because I'm pretty convinced that something like that decreases then the risk of moving the virus to the younger animals. And I'm using that as an example uh, to illustrate to your question about what can the producer do. So I think small things like that help to break the cycle of transmission of these viruses, not just flu, could also be PERS or sometimes even the mycoplasma, you know, if you're trying to, to eliminate mycoplasma from your farm. But at the same time, it's not just one, one thing, right? It's these, it's the vaccination, is the, um, uh, you know, good practices around uh, processing, you know, it's all those different pieces that for the most part, I think they are done quite well from a production perspective, but we just have to also look at them from the virus perspective and then try to maybe uh, be a bit more uh, conscious about some of those practices so we can prevent that transmission. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. One of the things I heard many years ago, and I don't, I don't know if this was folklore or if this is real, but I had always heard that flu will stay in your nasal passages for about seven days. And so, you know, even blowing your nose when you come to the farm or after you've worked with a group of flu positive pigs, you should go ahead and do that. I don't, what's your take on that one? You know, on the people, uh, I don't know on people, but uh, we actually, for how long, right? But yeah, if you are infected, certainly seven days, I think that would be very reasonable. But we did a study a couple of years ago in which employees would self-swap themselves um, and that we were measuring exposure more than anything and try to assess how often employees would go to the farms that, you know, with at least PCR positive in the nasal swaps. And we saw actually a number of, uh, a number of uh, employees being uh, testing testing um, testing positive uh, going into the farm so so I don't know how many days but two three days and I don't really know whether blowing the nose would be good enough but 
there are other things we can do nowadays, right? We're learning with COVID some of the masks, maybe the surgical masks, or even just the basic washing hands. But I think to your point, I think there are things in terms of those very basic hygiene principles, right? Uh, I, I insist washing hands, don't touch your, your nose, right, when you work. So I think that can that can go a long way. So, well, Lundy, our time is kind of wrapping up here. So maybe give our our listeners a couple of key takeaway points that you would like for them to to have from our podcast today. Yeah. So I think one of the take home is that uh, I think you should look at at flu control um, from both sides of the equation. In one end, you want to help increase that immunity and um, that resistance of the animals. And I think you do that for the most part using vaccines. And on the other end, you want to decrease that risk of of transmission. Um, and then you do that with biosecurity practices. So for me, flu control, you have to work in both sides of the equation, vaccines and, and management or biosecurity. So to me, that's a very important take-home message. And the other take-home message, I know it's frustrating, but I don't think we should, um, stop trying and should be discouraged because we are still learning on some of those things. And if anything, I actually think we need to measure when we do an intervention to measure whether it's being effective. And that way we learn and we change and we adapt. So those, I think, would be my take-home messages for today. You know, very good. Those are good messages. It is time to our famous three. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Eastman Animal Nutrition. Visit EASTMAN.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Curious to discover if you can manage your animal data and team's work with the touch of a finger? Some of the best and largest pig farm holdings worldwide use cloud farms to collect and analyze data like never before. How? With the most advanced mobile app to collect data accurately and super fast. For breeding, farrowing, weaning, and finishing. Also, this is the easiest way to assign tasks to your team and motivate to work more efficiently. You instantly understand what gets done on time and what doesn't. So yes, you can manage your animal data with the touch of a finger. Well, as you know, uh, we like to ask our, our guest speaker a couple of questions. And, and so we'll start with the first one, which is, what's your favorite swine resource? <laughs> you know, I still, I'm a traditional when it comes to some of the information where I like to 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 go and, and find good information. And I would say still the disease of swine I like. For certain things, even though nowadays, yeah, you do a lot of Googling and, you know, and do databases and so on. But depending on the topic, I still go to the diseases of swine book. So I guess I will, I will choose that one, but not all of it. I went to reach for mine on uh, last week and I realized I had left it at home and I was like, oh my gosh, I need my book. So I you know that still my go-to as well. Um, how about something that's not related to pigs? Are there any books that you've read recently that you might recommend to our listeners? 
Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked me that question ahead so I could be prepared, but I'm reading this book and I don't know how well you can see it. It's the the Cold Breaker and it's about the the life or, or the career of Jennifer Duda, who is one of the pioneers on, on the CRIS system that now allows for all the gene editing. It's written by Walter Isaacson and I find it fascinating and halfway through it and I keep reading a little bit every day. Because I find that very fascinating. But, you know, um, I encourage everybody to read it. it. It's very insightful in terms of what the CRIS system can do from a gene editing and then the possibilities. But also talks about the research uh, experience of, 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 of a scientist, right? And the collaborations and some of the politics. Um, I find it fascinating. So I would recommend that book. Yeah, that sounds like a good book. I'll have to look at that one. Um, my last question for you, Monsi, is if you can think of someone in your life that has been successful and you define success however you want to define it, what would be a key trait that they've possessed that you think has allowed them to be successful? Yeah, um, without uh, naming a specific people, um, because I think sometimes this trait is across people and I would not want to leave anybody out. I think one trait that I admire is perseverance to to be persistent if it was a writer, but to persevere, I think it's the right word, but also integrity. I think when those two go together, uh, I think uh, that goes a long way. I mean, because there are difficulties along the way. So, and then to make progress, you have to, to persist in some way. So you have to be that, um, I think it's perseverance, right? <laughs> the right yes. word to say it. Yes. Perseverance. So thank you. Thank You're you. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what you said. Yep. So perseverance and integrity um, combined together. Yeah. I think those are great traits for sure. Well, Monty, I do see that our time is up today and I greatly appreciate and enjoyed our conversation around flu and some of the things that we can do within the barn to help control it and potentially eliminate it. Uh, for our listeners, again, this is Dr. Monsi Tormel, who is at the University of Minnesota. Monsi, thanks so much for your time today. No, thank you, Laura. It's a great always to, to chat with you and to be part of your program. Thank you for having me. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.